Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? Hello. Out there. A ringing telephone and a scramble to answer it used to be a common event in a household. Rarely would a call go unanswered, but a time before call display, we would consider it a sin to avoid picking up. After all, what if it was an emergency? Usually it was a friend, which was always exciting. Sometimes it was a family member checking in, which was okay, depending on which one. On occasion, it was a salesperson, which wasn't as annoying back then. A real salesperson with charm and wit, not some friggin' robot trying to rip off grandma. And then, you know, what else was there? A co-worker looking for shift coverage? A wrong number? Dead air? A prank call? And oh yes, of course, the obscene phone caller. The man on the other end. Breathing. Welcome to Dark Topic. I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is a true crime happening. The Walrus. On Friday, March 31st of 1985... 17-year-old Sherry Smith, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl from rural South Carolina, vanished from her parents' driveway. She'd been collecting the mail. Sherry, like her older sister Dawn, was a singer, but neither her mother nor father heard a peep, a single note from their daughter, before she was dragged away and eventually forced to write them one. Sherry had spent that fateful Friday afternoon first preparing for her school graduation from Lexington High School, Sherry was selected to sing the national anthem for this occasion. She was a star student and extracurricular phenom. Sherry was heavily involved with student council, was an all-state chorus honoree, a jazz soloist and a dancer for the stage choir, among other activities. She had a boyfriend and a large friend group, a younger brother, age 15, whom she loved spending time with, riding mini bikes around their large country property. Sherry was a clone of her older sister Dawn, whom she looked just like but also followed in the same interests. Don was away to Columbia College, majoring in voice and piano. Sherry couldn't wait to set off into her own life's adventure that would no doubt closely mirror Don's. But first, Sherry was focused on the fun of graduation, which included the big senior trip next week to the Bahamas. She'd been returning home from a pool party when she'd been abducted, right from her parents' long driveway, 750 feet long, was this driveway, which explains why her parents didn't hear or see her stolen. They lived in a country house out in rural South Carolina, like I mentioned. Her parents, at around 3.30 p.m., had looked at the window and noticed Sherry's blue Chevette sitting at the end of the drive between the trees with its driver's side door open. Mom figured Sherry had received a letter, maybe from her sister Dawn, and was reading it by the mailbox, which was out of view. Sherry's father wasn't so optimistic. He worried that his daughter had suffered some kind of medical emergency down there when he continued to see no movement. Sherry had been diagnosed with a rare form of diabetes known as water diabetes, the term coming from the constant threat of dehydration for those who suffer from it. Sherry kept a special nasal spray on her that, if not used occasionally, would result in her passing out and possibly becoming comatose. Dad gives it another minute then grabs his keys. He's going to see what's the matter here. 
At the end of the driveway, he finds the Chevette idling. Mail is scattered by the mailbox. He looks in through the open driver's side door and sees Sherry's black jelly sandals on the floorboard as if she'd vanished from them. But the scattered mail tells the true tale. Bob Smith has always feared for his kids, especially his daughters, like any father would. I'm sure he'd visualize such a nightmarish scenario, considered steps he could take, advice he could share to avoid just this kind of terror-soaked moment. He'd raise them outside of the city, within access of Lexington, but tucked away here in what should have been a safe place. Though now, as he gets back in his car and reverses the long driveway, it becomes clear that the isolated nature of the property had made his daughter easy pickings for whomever was currently hustling her away, and that clearly nowhere, even the middle of it, is ever all that safe. Police are called, an investigation kicks off, but everyone involved, including you and I, taking our peek back here after 40 years, know that this isn't good. Sherry Smith was clearly swiped by some shady sicko, first stalked, then stolen, and now, well, nobody can be sure. And everybody tries to assure the Smiths that Sherry will turn up, that perhaps there's a reasonable explanation. But her father knows better. He'd seen the bare footprints, headed to the mailbox, then scuffed all about, scattered like the mail had been. He'd found his daughter's purse in the Chevette, with her medication inside. And he'd already had to share his fears with his wife and his kids. From the moment he saw that car door open and heard the sick sound of the engine idling, seen the mail scattered about, Bob Smith had known the terrible truth, and all he'd been doing is staying strong for everyone, trying his best to keep a brave face, but you could hear it in him here. After the county sheriff had organized the largest search in South Carolina history, the distraught father had this to say to the media and his daughter's abductor. Whoever it is that has our daughter Sherry, we want her back. We miss her. We love her. And please send her back home where she belongs. There are no leads, no fingerprints or usable tire prints from the scene. A red handkerchief belonging to Sherry is found a half a mile from the Smith's driveway. Perhaps Sherry had managed to throw it from an open window. Open as the weather was sweltering in South Carolina that day. Investigators are confident that she'd been taken at gunpoint. This would explain why she hadn't screamed or yelled out for help. Also, why the abductor would feel confident enough to leave his vehicle windows open during the getaway. You know, like, if you scream, I'll shoot you. Once the father and boyfriend are basically ruled out, the focus turns to the possibility of this being a kidnap for ransom. Of course, it could simply be a kidnap, rape, and murder event. It wouldn't be the first or last time, and it's what everyone feels and fears is happening. But the Smiths are deeply religious, and they have faith, along with investigators, that a call will come in or a letter will be sent that will give them some power back in this horribly powerless situation. The Smith's home is taken over. Phones are tapped. Officers stay posted around the clock. Bob Smith is a well-known resident. The family is wealthy. Bob was an engineer and now is an entrepreneur. He serves as a prison chaplain and is heavily involved with the local ministry. One concern is that Sherry's father had brought her and her older sister Dawn to sing at the prison a few times as part of his services. Maybe an inmate had become infatuated, been released, and tracked the Smith's home down, that's an angle that's being looked at, but the hope is that Sherry had been stolen for money, not for her good looks. A brief period of hope comes and passes when the Smiths receive a phone call from a man wanting to make an exchange, Sherry for a large sum of cash. 
This call happens the Friday night of Sherry's disappearance. There was little time wasted in asking the public for help, which is interesting. This is a time when a 24-hour period was the norm before a person could be deemed missing. Sherry had been bumped up on the list because of her father's standing in the community, not to mention the clear evidence that she'd been abducted. Being blonde and blue-eyed helped, no doubt, but truly, even without all the obvious advantages, Sherry was medically fragile, which was reason enough for the preferential treatment in this situation. All right, I think I cleaned that up with a dirty mop. Well enough. So back to this first call, which again came in that same evening of Sherry's brazen afternoon abduction. This call, which featured a man demanding cash to be dropped for pickup, was able to be traced as investigators had already mobilized and set their ransom traps. The Smith phone was tapped and a trace turned up the caller after some effort. Again, it's 1985. These things aren't yet instant. And eventually, 27-year-old Edward Robertson was tracked down as the caller and arrested for extortion and obstruction of justice once it was confirmed that he'd had nothing to do with the abduction and was only trying to cash in on it. The hoax had sent the investigative efforts down a dead end and chewed up precious time. That weekend was a wash. Nobody but the unsub and Sherry knew what was going on. That is, if Sherry were still alive. The mood became desperate and bleak as Monday came to be. The clock striking midnight, the family holding vigil, hoping for a ringing phone to break the silence. Eldest daughter Dawn has come home from college. She and her mother Hilda, along with younger brother Robert and father Bob, have been huddled tight over the phones, hoping, praying. Sheriff's officers are still a presence in their home, which is uncomfortable and comforting at the same time, I'm sure. They try their best to stay out of the family's way, but when the phone rings 2.20 a.m. of June 3rd, the dozing officers come thundering to life and begin shouting direction to Bob, who is in his pajamas but ready over the master bedroom phone. The caller is a man, his voice slightly distorted. Bob Smith is told to put his wife on the phone by the caller. He hands the receiver to Hilda, and soon the worried mother is reaching for a pen and notepad. The caller shares that he is the one who has Sherry. To prove it, he describes the black and yellow bikini Sherry had been wearing under her clothes when abducted. The caller advises Mrs. Smith to tell authorities to call off the search. He shares that a letter will be arriving in the mail shortly. It will be from Sherry and will be dated June 1st, 3.10 a.m., though the time was actually 3.12 a.m., the caller says. Then, he hangs up. The call is traced to a payphone outside a small grocery store five miles outside of Lexington and just over 10 miles from the Smith residence. Although a cruiser gets there quick, it's too late. The payphone is checked for prints, but has been wiped clean. An eerie scene to know Sherry's abductor had just been there. A dimly lit booth on the side of a dark highway, connected to a sleeping old mom-and-pop grocery. The mystery man had turned this spot into a haunt before vanishing like a ghost. The attention now turns to the post office. If a letter had in fact been sent, it could be waiting there. The postmaster is awoken. The mail is soon being sifted through by gloved officers. It will take a couple of hours, but eventually they turn up a letter addressed to the Smiths. It is handed to Bob Smith in the early morning. He, his wife, daughter, and son brace themselves for what the standard white envelope might contain. The stamp is of a Mallard Duck decoy, a common 22-cent stamp at the time. There is no return address. The recipient is labeled as the Smith family. Their rural address is printed beneath. Bob, wearing gloves, 
carefully tears the envelope open. Its contents, next tearing his heart. Investigators read along with Father Bob Smith. The family isn't there for the initial reading. This is done in a conference room at the police station. The letter is two pages on blue line sheets from a yellow legal pad. The paper is first slipped into protective glass casing before being studied, this to preserve any potential prints, fibers, or indentations. I'll spare you my reading of the entire letter. If you'd like to see it yourself, you could find it by searching Sherry Smith Letter, S-H-A-R-I. Sherry's father immediately recognizes his daughter's handwriting. At the top is printed, quote, I love y'all. Next to the date written June 1st, 1985, and the time 3.10 a.m. The letter is titled, Last Will and Testament. Sherry Smith in the letter professes her love for her family and friends. She tells them not to worry and hopes that this won't ruin their lives. It's a heart-wrenching read. At one point, Sherry writes, quote, My thoughts will always be with you and in you. Casket closed. I love you all so damn much. That part got me. I mean, the whole letter leaves you a little stunned, impressed, and sad, horrified. But the quick message of casket closed. That's messed up. Sherry is writing this letter moments before her death. She stays strong for everyone else, but it's not hard to read between the lines, so to speak. The young woman is desperate to share her heart before it stops beating, at the decision of the monster who stands over her while she pens this excruciating goodbye. To his credit, he actually mails it. This could have been an exercise to keep his victim under control, a way of showing some humanity before taking the girl away from life and such a dehumanizing way, but we'll get to that. But first I should discredit his follow-through in mailing the letter. He only did it to spread the pain around, not to heal it. This killer enjoys dragging things out. He wants every last drop of sadistic pleasure he can squeeze from the Smith family. Investigators, including the FBI now, have decided on a profile for the abductor. They figure he'll be unattractive, maybe former military, possibly a tradesman, they noted an attention to detail in his comment during the call to Sherry's mother that the time had been 3.12 a.m., not 3.10 a.m. as Sherry had written. And I'm not going to sit here and act like this is my area of expertise. That is legendary FBI profiler John Douglas's area of expertise, whose book on this case, When a Killer Calls, you can find a link to in the show notes and read more into the ins and outs of the investigation. Following the letter and the anguish caused to the Smith family, whom are now nearly certain they'd lost Sherry. It's dated June 1st, and it was June 3rd when they got the call from the caller. More phone calls start to come in from this caller. The killer, likely killer, is toying with them now. He shows specific interest in speaking with the mother and later in the remaining daughter, Dawn. Dawn, who looks so much like Sherry, and is thought by some to have been the prime target. Don is used by investigators to keep the caller on the line as long as possible, as he soon shows great interest in her. I'll play some of those calls for you in a moment. The second call came on Monday, June 3rd of 1995, just after 3 p.m. It was the first of the recorded calls and came the afternoon of Sherry's letter being opened and read by her father and investigators. On this call, eldest daughter Don Smith answered. The caller asked to speak with Mother Hilda, he wanted to confirm with her that she got the letter and wanted to know if she believed him. I don't doubt that he also wanted to hear the uh, sadness, uh, the terror in the mother's voice. 
Uh, he wanted to confirm that the mother believed him that he took Sherry. The mother, Hilda, says of course she believes him. She asks if Sherry's alive. He says she is, but can't talk right now. He then demands Mrs. Smith tell investigators to call off the search and hangs up. Asking for the search to stop is interesting. The man is clearly concerned about being found out, about being tracked down, which tells investigators he's local. But truly, the reason for the calls is because the caller is getting off on terrorizing the family. At least that's how I feel about these calls. Have a listen for yourself. I should mention that Sherry had written the word Sher Richard, S-H-A-R-I-C-H-A-R-D, a mix of her and her boyfriend Richard's name, and circled it with a heart in the letter. You'll hear her mother reference this. Also, the phrase God is love was written down the side of one page by Sherry. All right, ready? Sherry's sister Dawn answers to start what we have here of the caller's disturbing phone interactions with the Smith family. That's not good, you know. So Sherry's mother uh, is holding out hope that he 
still has Sherry alive somewhere, and he's just apologizing in general for the abduction, not for murdering her as it now is starting to feel. What he's wanting Sherry's mother to do, Hilda Smith to do, is make sure that the investigators call off the search for him. And obviously they're not going to do that. He calls back the next evening. The caller is speaking as if there's more than one person involved. What he's doing actually is speaking as though he and Sherry are one, which is disheartening again. It's becoming clear that he's done something to the girl. The Smith family have appeared on television this Tuesday afternoon. They ask for Sherry's safe return. They assure the abductor that they believe he's taking good care of her. But they're not feeling great about that once they get this contact that evening. He's asking for them to have uh, ambulance on call and ready because of Sherry's medical condition. He's saying she'll need help right away. And then he's saying in the next breath that, I'm sorry, we are now one. All this spooky uh, shit that freaks Sherry's mother out, obviously. And you can hear Dawn there at the end. Dawn's on every call as well. She's on another phone. Um, He doesn't want to talk to the father saying that Sherry doesn't want the father to be involved. Obviously, it is just this killer, this caller, who um, only gets off on distressing the females involved here. The women, the young women, sorry. I know f- females is a touchy word for some people. Wednesday, June 5th, just before noon, a fifth call. This is now six days since Sherry was stolen. The killer tells the family where to find Sherry. He leads on until the end that Sherry is alive telling her mother that she's drinking plenty of water and urinating frequently. This to alleviate concerns with Sherry's diabetic condition. He asks that if anything happens to him or to us, that Sherry's mother remember the closed casket request. The caller is moving back and forth from convincing the mother that her daughter is fine to alluding that she is gone and her spirit is speaking through him. He finally, around noon of this sixth day and fifth phone call, gives up where to find Sherry Smith. The caller tells Sherry's mother that an ambulance will be necessary and that Sherry doesn't want the circus sent to get her. Keep her recovery low-key. Then he shares how to find Sherry. Investigators rush to a location 15 miles or so west of the Smith's rural home. At 12.35 p.m. of Wednesday, June 5, 1985, a helicopter search unit spots 17-year-old missing person Sherry Smith. Her mother is packing a hospital bag in preparation for having to stay with her daughter for a while in recovery. But it's all over. It had been over since June 1st, just after Sherry had written her letter. The body was found eight feet beyond a tree line out behind the Masonic Lodge he mentioned. It was badly decomposed, the body. The temperature had been up around 100 degrees Fahrenheit since Sherry's abduction. Sherry had on what she'd been wearing that day, white shorts, a black and white blouse over the swimwear, 
a black and yellow bikini of which the top was missing, a trophy, I'm assuming. She had her gold necklace on, a gift from her boyfriend. Sherry was missing one gold stud earring in her right ear, but the left one remained. She was barefoot, as she'd been when abducted at gunpoint. This had been confirmed by the killer on one of the calls. Here, I'll play that for you quick here. Get it. We, 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 we get it. Hold on. Fuck. Shut up. God damn it. All right. So he's repeating some of the things that I already shared. There was a reason I didn't play that call initially because he just keeps on going on and on and on, uh, disguising his voice. It's, uh, it's excruciating for the family and um, 
for you there, I'm sure. It was for me. I had to turn it off. So as you heard there, what I was trying to share was that he claimed that Sherry had the fear of God put into her at the sight of him pointing a gun at her, and had quickly obeyed his demands. The grass leading to the dump site is thoroughly compressed by tire tracks. The killer had possibly been visiting the body, probably talking to it, sharing the details of the conversation he'd been having with Sherry's family, giving them false hope. The autopsy shows that Sherry had been suffocated. The killer will later share that she'd been given a choice and had selected suffocation as her preferred death. The body has no obvious signs of abuse on it, save ligature marks on the arms and legs, wrists and ankles from electrical cord. The killer will make a call to a news outlet the following day, claiming he had only wanted to make love to Sherry. But things got out of hand. Here's how they got out of hand. We learn this from the killer on a later phone call, one he makes collect for Don Smith, who he's calling Don E. Smith now, uh, you know, real personable. The killer shares that when it was time, just after the letter had been written by Sherry, the killer had, quote, made love to Sherry while she was tied to a bed with electrical cord. And I'll spare you the, those recordings. Uh, he claims the sex was consensual, including three sessions of oral sex. Uh, is it better that I say it? Probably not. This is disgusting. He's telling the sister this, and he's telling her because it excites him, not because he wants the truth out before God, as he claimed. The killer asks Don if she'd like to know how Sherry died. Don says she would. The killer tells her to be strong now. Sherry had been strong, so you must be strong too, Don. He'd wrapped her head with duct tape from her chin up over her face, eventually covering her head. That is how he'd suffocated her while she was tied to the bed. Now, isn't that good to know? The killer asks to speak with Don's mother. Here's how that went. Hilda Smith tells her daughter's murderer this, quote, You need to meet with somebody that can talk to you. The killer responds with, quote, Well, I got a lot to think about, and I'm, I'm gone, Mrs. Smith. And uh, please, I know this might be selfish, but uh, y'all please ask a special prayer for me. Your daughter said that she was not afraid and she was strong-willed. She knew that she was going to heaven, was going to be an angel, and like I told Don, she was going to be singing like crazy, end quote. Hilda can't help herself. She's been coached to let the killer talk, but she has to know, quote, Did you tell her you were going to kill her? Uh, yes, I did, and I gave her the choice. I asked if she wanted to be drug overdose, shot, or uh, uh, suffocated, and she picked suffocation. The mother jumps in here. My God, how could you? The killer. Well, forgive us, God. The mother. Not us. You. There will be more calls. Most are traced to wipe down phone booths from South to North Carolina. The caller long gone. The killer. Always behaving, maybe even believing that he and the Smith family have a deep connection here. That he is part of their family now. Since Sherry is part of him. He teases that he will turn himself in, but this, like everything else, was a lie. All right, everybody, Zipix toothpicks. This is something that I use all the time. So this episode is brought to you by Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Zipix brings you a totally satisfying, convenient, and great-tasting way to curb your nicotine cravings. Now you can get your nicotine fix anytime, anywhere, without having to rely on smoking or vaping. Zipix toothpicks give you an easier, better, and more discreet way to get your fix. They're available in six great long-lasting flavors, 
and they have options in two milligrams and three milligrams of nicotine. Zippix are perfect for flights, sporting events, restaurants, podcasting, uh, literally anywhere that you smoke or vape where that's banned. They're also one of the most cost-effective nicotine products on the market. Zippix also offers caffeine and B12-infused toothpicks if you're not a nicotine user or if you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit. Zippix have already helped tens of thousands of customers, including myself, to get their nicotine fix without needing to inhale smoke or vape oils. Make your lungs happy and try Zippix nicotine-infused toothpicks. So ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape, and get some nicotine-infused toothpicks at zippixtoothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code DARKTOPIC at checkout. Your lungs will be glad you did. Must be 21 years of age or older to order. Warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zip more, smoke less with Zippix nicotine toothpicks. On June 14th of 1985, two weeks since the abduction of Sherry Smith and only 24 miles from the mailbox she'd been stolen at, a silver-gray car with red racing stripes slowly pulls into a Richland County trailer park, its driver searching for another blonde to snatch. He finds one in nine-year-old Deborah May Helmick. The blonde-haired, blue-eyed little girl is playing out front of her trailer home with her little brother, three-year-old Woody. Mom's at work. She just left for the barbecue hut she waitressed at. Dad, a construction worker, is just home from work. It's around 4 p.m. when Deborah May's screams begin, before the sound of a car door slamming, then gravel kicking from tires. It's another hot day in South Carolina, and most are inside their trailers at this trailer park. They're sitting next to their rattling air conditioners, so the kidnapping is muffled for most. The commotion. But soon Deborah's father is called out by a neighbor who'd just seen a man grab Deborah May and take off in the silver car. Three-year-old Woody is missing too, but is soon found in a bush, mumbling and crying, making little sense. A small posse of residents from the Shiloh trailer park assemble, and a chase ensues, but too late. The killer has hit the highway. News of the brazen abduction soon hits the airwaves, and an already shaken community, despite the heat, becomes frozen with fear. It had been two weeks since the abduction of Sherry Smith, and almost exactly to the minute. This was happening again. There is now a description of the abductor, a white male, 30 to 35 years old, around 5 foot 9, a little over 200 pounds, with a beer belly, a short brown beard with mustache, receding hairline, looking like a walrus. A walrus rolling out to swipe some food before lumbering back to its lair. That's how it had been. How it was. The silver vehicle with the red racing stripes was thought to be a Monte Carlo or a Pontiac Grand Prix, early 80s model. This style of vehicle was one of three that had been spotted in the vicinity of the Sherry Smith abduction. The walrus had been wearing light-colored shorts and a wife beater. Nine-year-old Deborah May Helmick had kicked and scratched and fought the whole way to the car. She'd pushed off the vehicle with her feet for a moment before being corralled and tossed in. When Deborah May's three-year-old brother Woody finally begins making sense, he shares, quote, The bad man said he was coming back to get me. Over the next week, up to 80 people a day visit the trailer park, bringing food and money and gifts. Deborah May's mother is bedridden with grief. Her father thanks the community but expresses how overwhelming this all is. Helpless is the feeling. 
Everyone from the investigators to the families to the community are being held hostage, abducted in their own way, unable to enjoy the summer, their lives the way they would, without knowing a walrus of a man had a little girl in his lair and was likely playing with his food. Investigators needed him to call again, but the killer had gone silent on this one, likely because of how shameful the crime was, also because the Helmick family don't have a phone. Really, though, there's no way to positively spin the abduction of a screaming nine-year-old girl if he was to call anyways, and God knows what he'd been doing to her, had already done to her. He probably doesn't want to talk about it. The plan is to coax him out of hiding. June 25th, 1985 would have been Sherry Smith's 18th birthday. Famed mind hunter investigator John E. Douglas, whose book, again, on this case you can find in the show notes, When a Killer Calls, Douglas is the one who suggests using Don Smith as bait. That's Sherry's older sister, I have to remind you. So it's obvious that the killer has an infatuation with Don by this point. The plan is to have a remembrance ceremony for Sherry, where Don will attach one of Sherry's prized belongings, a small stuffed koala bear, which opens its arms as if to hug when squeezed at the shoulders. They want Don to attach it to a stick and bouquet of pink flowers that would be left at the grave site. On television, Don would be seen placing this on Sherry's grave. The hope was to get the killer to come take the koala, which Don would explain to the camera had been from Sherry's collection of koalas, a collection she started when Don went to Columbia College, of which the mascot is a koala. So the thought, obviously, here is that the killer would want this as a souvenir. He's already taken a few souvenirs. The cemetery would be staked out, but there was little hope the bait would be taken. Really, what Douglas thought would happen would be the killer sensing the trap, then calling the Smiths, letting them know he wasn't that stupid, or that he was touched by the ceremony, sorry that they were touched, he and Sherry are one in spirit. Remember? But it doesn't matter. The killer calls before the ceremony happens. It's a week since nine-year-old Deborah May's brazen kidnapping when a call comes into the Smith residence just after midnight. We gave him too much credit, thinking that he need to be coaxed out, or they gave him too much credit. Uh, he can't help himself. Dawn answers the phone. She's surrounded by diligent investigators who have become like family at this point. The man on the phone would like to think he's become part of the Smith inner circle himself, that Sherry lives in him, and so these calls are a blessing for Don, her brother, and her parents. But the past few interactions, Don has changed on them. She'd been coached to be more confrontational with the killer, less sweet as a way to provoke his true self. And on this call, they finally see the mask slip. He is not disguising his voice, and he is not pretending to be a sweetheart anymore. He is exactly what he is, a killer of girls. Now a little one. And he wants Don to know she will someday join them. You know, uh, God wants you to join Cherry Bay. It's just a matter of time. This month, next month, this year, next year. You can't be protected all the time. So you'll notice there that he's completely stopped disguising his voice with whatever device he was using to do so. The killer asked Don, have you heard about Deborah May Hamrick? Uh, no, Don says. And Don has to be screwing with him here, which is kind of great. She, of course, knows what he meant. The killer had messed up the last name of the nine-year-old girl he'd taken, and he angrily corrects himself. The 10-year-old, H-E-L-M-I-C-K, Richland County. Okay, now listen carefully. Go one north, well, one west, turn left at Peach Festival Road or 
Bill's Grill, go three and a half miles through Gilbert, turn right, last dirt road before you come to a stop sign at Two Notch Road, go through chain and no trespassing sign, go 50 yards and to the left, go 10 yards, Deborah May is waiting, God forgive us all. Dawn tries to keep the killer on the line. She blurts out, hey, listen, uh, just out of curiosity, how old are you? But the games are over. Donnie, your time is near. God forgive us and protect us all. Good night for now, Don E. Smith. Don manages to keep the killer on the line a little bit longer, and investigators secure the trace. They realize he's let the call drag longer than usual because he's situated 50 miles away, out front of a Kentucky Fried Chicken in Sumter, South Carolina. He will be long gone by the time a unit can reach that area. The phone receiver is removed from the booth and sent to be analyzed, but they know he's likely wiped it clean. There's a desperation in the air, the killer is running the show, and now he's threatened to haunt the Smith family for years until he can get to Dawn. Dawn wonders aloud how she will ever be able to rest if he's not caught. They've missed yet another opportunity, and who knows if he'll give them another before he attempts to come to get her next week, next month, next year. It's terrorizing. The body of nine-year-old Deborah May Helmick is discovered just where the directions had led. They found her in the woods at the bottom of a hill, just beyond a no-trespassing sign and chain. The small body is badly decomposed. The clothing is the same as the day Deborah May was taken, white pinstripe shorts and a lavender t-shirt. The body and face are in such bad shape that the parents are asked to identify their daughter by photos of the clothes and a pink beret that was in her blonde hair. The mother had this to say about that item, quote, Yes, that's Deborah Mays. Around two o'clock that day, I washed her hair, brushed it, and put two pink berets in it. That's one of them. But there is an item in the photos that the little girl's parents don't recognize. It's a pair of adult woman-sized panties. They had been put over the girl's own cotton underwear. I had read that these were thought to be Sherry Smith's bikini bottoms, but in further research, I found this was not true. These were silk thong style underwear, potentially from an unknown victim, and the killer had put them on the girl as part of some sexual game he'd played before wrapping the little one's face in duct tape when he was done with her. This is a very sick man on the loose, and the Lexington, South Carolina area might as well be his personal property for all of the talk of how everyone needs to beware of the walrus. But then, finally, some relief, a break in the case. The letter Sherry Smith had written, the uh, last will and testament, had been thoroughly analyzed and now a clue has revealed itself. Using an ESDA, that's an electrostatic detection apparatus, a device that fills indentations on paper with graphite to reveal words and numbers possibly transferred from an overlapping sheet of paper, the forensic team comes up with a name and a partial phone number. It turns out that this meticulous killer had made an error. He had given Sherry Smith paper from a notepad, and the name Joe is revealed, along with an Alabama phone number. There are numbers missing, but it's only going to take time and effort to reveal who Joe is. After many calls and combinations of the possible number, a Joe Shepard is determined to be the Joe hidden within Sherry's last will and testament letter. Joe is tracked down, and they soon realize Joe has parents in the Lexington area. Lake Murray, South Carolina, that's where they live, only a couple miles from where nine-year-old Deborah May Helmick's body had been found. When investigators speak to the Shepherds, they learn that they just returned from a six-week vacation 
Investigators feel the lead slipping from them. But then, when the Shepherds are asked if they'd heard about the recent murders, Mrs. Shepherd shares that they had heard from their house sitter, an employee of Mr. Shepherd's electrical business, Larry. Larry had been quite animated about the case. Mrs. Shepherd realizes as she's speaking that the investigators are looking at one another intensely. They ask for a description of Larry, and what they hear is the basic profile of their killer. Meticulous, tradesman, lives with parents, single, mid-thirties, a dead-on likeness in the physical features, those of a human walrus. On a hunch, the detective asks if Mr. Shepard owns a gun. He says he does and goes to retrieve it from its case for them. But it's missing. Nearby is a pad of paper they'd used to write important numbers down for Larry, one being their son Joey's, who lived in Alabama. When the room and bed that Larry had been using at the Shepherds is searched, Mr. Shepard's gun is discovered along with a Hustler magazine under the mattress. The gun had been fired, but jammed. The Hustler magazine cover features a blonde tied up in the cruciform position. There's blood and urine and semen on a blue pad, like you might use for children in case somebody wets the bed. They find this as well. Next, they bring the Shepherds a recording of the killer's voice. He speaks of Sherry on this, and despite having disguised his voice, the Shepherds confirm that it's the voice of their house sitter, Larry Jean Bell. Mrs. Shepherd, whose first name is Sharon, then has a startling realization. Larry had always called her Mrs. Shepherd or Sharon, but since she'd returned from their trip, Larry had oddly been calling her Sherry. It's soon discovered that a vehicle belonging to Larry Jean Bell had been spotted at the cemetery where Sherry had been buried and the remembrance ceremony held on her birthday with the koala bear, bait being laid uh, at that ceremony. His plate number had been photographed from a distance along with a bunch of other vehicles, uh, but he'd never got out of the vehicle, and he was kind of on a list of people they might have gotten to eventually. A look into his past reveals some disturbing information. There are assaults and attempted abduction charges. One incident in particular stands out from October of 79, where Larry Jean Bell had been charged for making obscene phone calls to the 10-year-old daughter of an ex-girlfriend. Bell's parents' house, a cedar-sided one-story home, is located at the end of a cul-de-sac in Shull Island of Lake Murray in South Carolina. It's soon being staked out, and it doesn't take long for him to be taken down. When he drives out in a late 70s cream-gray Buick, he is arrested and asks if this is about those two girls. He then requests to talk to his mama. In the trunk of the Buick is found plates for a car registered to his sister. The first letter of the plate is a D. A witness from the Deborah May kidnapping at the trailer park had remembered D being the first letter on the plate of the silver Monte Carlo-style vehicle with the red racing stripes, though it's not clear if that was his sister's car. From my research, it sounds like Bell used his sister's plate, but on a separate vehicle for the kidnapping. Regardless, there is a mountain of evidence beginning to pile up here, including blonde hairs and blood, urine stains found in the shepherd's bathroom and bedroom on that pad that I mentioned, the blue uh, soaker pad, where Bell had been staying in the room he'd been staying at the shepherd's, and where he'd likely kept the girls, raped and terrorized them before killing them with a head wrap of duct tape. Tape investigators would find in Larry Bell's blue work van, They'd find stamps featuring Mallard Duck decoys in his dresser of his bedroom at his mom and dad's place. Also, a bunch of gross bondage porn mags, uh, some blonde hair that was on his clothes that would later closely match both girls. 
Between the recorded phone calls and the Shepherd resident's connection to Sherry's last will and testament, there's plenty. In court, Larry Jean Bell refers to himself as the walrus. He first denies that he could have been the perpetrator, but then seems to begin having a little fun with the whole thing. The Walrus is, of course, a Beatles song written by John Lennon. The Walrus is thought to be Paul McCartney, but also Lennon just having fun with the fact people obsessed over hidden meaning in their music. It means nothing, really, The Walrus. A cool title, though, don't you think? I do. I used it. Sherry's mother, Hilda, and sister Dawn are brought in before the whole trial starts. The interrogation initially was going nowhere. Larry Bell was playing dumb, which wasn't hard for him. He's sheepish with investigators claiming that it's not him on the tapes, that this Larry Bell couldn't have said those things or done what he's accused of, that maybe there's a bad Larry Bell he's not aware of. He puts a big man act on with Dawn around, condescends and even flirts with the young woman he'd threatened to stalk for the rest of her life until he got the chance to abduct, confine, tie up, and rape before wrapping her face in duct tape, then call her mother about it, no doubt. Dawn and Hilda Smith bravely face this monster. They patiently attempt to get a confession using tactics taught to them by the FBI, but a confession never comes. Sherry's mother ends their face-to-face by telling the killer this, quote, Even though I sit this close and look at you, and you're the man that called my house, I don't hate you. There is not enough room in my heart for more pain. Larry Jean Bell should be moved, but he stays the same, buzzing on the inside with his close proximity to Dawn, no doubt. The meeting ends. The investigators sense Bell is enjoying this too much and that the Smiths are simply being tortured here. Bell, sensing the meeting was closing, puts on his best baby talk and asks Don, quote, If I remember down the line, can we conference again and tell you what I know? The agents end the session. It's clear that the killer isn't going to crack. Larry Jean Bell would be suspected of at least three other murders, but never confessed to anything. He only played games alluded to the possibility of being a serial killer, but never came right out with it. In prison, he would talk about a well somewhere in the woods that had bodies stuffed in it. This would be followed up on, but no bodies were ever found. The fact that he never came out with any of the other murders he likely was responsible for wasn't because he didn't want to face the consequences, in my opinion. Bell would go on to face those, ultimately. It was because he enjoyed knowing what others wanted to know. He's what's known as an emotionally sadistic narcissist. Back to that meeting quickly, where the Smiths, uh, Hilda and Don, had to face Sherry Smith's killer. As the Smith women left, Bell chimed out, quote, Thank you very much. God bless us all. As if Sherry was in him, speaking through him. Larry Jean Bell tries an insanity defense. His lawyer suggests he suffered from a split personality disorder, today known as dissociative personality disorder. Bell requests that friends and family of the victims will be selected for the jury. He behaves oddly at every turn, claiming to be Christ, all that egomaniac garbage these types drag everyone through. Once the trial is done in late February of 86, a jury of five men and seven women deliberate just under an hour before handing over their decision to the judge. Guilty of the abduction and murder of 17-year-old Sherry Smith. He is sentenced to death. A year later, the same verdict in 9-year-old Deborah May Helmick's murder case. And in 1996, on Friday, October 4th, 1.12 a.m., at the age of 47, Deborah May's mother and Sherry Smith's father were there to witness 
the sentence carried out. Bell had no final words. He selected the electric chair over lethal injection. Maybe being an electrician had something to do with it, a more trusted or just familiar method. Bell had mentioned not wanting to fry a few times, so it's a little surprising, uh, dare I say shocking, the choice. Also surprising for a guy who couldn't keep his mouth shut all through the search for him, Larry Jean Bell refused to give a final statement. In court, in recordings, in life, he made little sense. Larry Jean Bell liked to portray himself as more than what he was while claiming to be nothing. He was, of course, a serial killer with an untold amount of victims. But to me, he was just the walrus. And that'll do it. That one took me longer than I wanted it to. It was uh, time for me to cover a serial killer. But now I remember why I don't endeavor into that much anymore because it's so much uh, to do. It's just me, you know. Uh, you'll hear a lot of podcasts at the end talk about all the people that they have helping them out or whatever. Uh, it's just me. Written by Jack Luna. Researched by Jack Luna. Produced by Jack Luna. For Jack Luna Creative Incorporated. I got my own business now. So uh, thank you for all the, the help getting there. I'm a businessman. I'm a, I'm a businessman. Let's read some reviews maybe. Something fun. Something I haven't done in a little while. See if I can boost my ego even more so here at the end. Make this more about me. All right, let's see what we got. No, dum-dum, three stars. People who work at SeaWorld are not animal lovers. They're animal abusers. They get what they deserve when the actual victim fights back. That from Vegan Always 7 I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Um, I must have mentioned something about SeaWorld and about how, I, oh yeah, okay, I'm kind of remembering now how I thought that the whale grabbing that woman in the Blackfish movie was uh, tough, was you know, that, that, that the, whale, the whale was wrong or the orca or whatever it was. And this person has picked that out, a throwaway comment I made and made it all about the review they have on my entire podcast. Thank you, Vegan Always 7. Five stars. Jack or whoever you are, you're hot. Thanks, Miss Divine, who keeps changing her fucking uh, rating on me, depending on whether she likes the past episode or not. Get a fucking life. One star. What happened, Luna? Luna, what happened to you? Oh, here we go. Luna, what happened to you? I was an avid fan of Old School Dark Topic, your cheesy home-written intro, the low production. It was pure, and listening to you was captivating. You could talk about the most gruesome acts with the voice of a gifted storyteller. Your voice, the Pied Piper's flute to my ears, followed anywhere it took me. This person writes too, eh? You think you write too. Even through the humor, which at times so sick I felt bad laughing. Wow, how fucking long is this one? Why change perfection for plastic? What are you talking about? You sound just like every other boring podcast with pointless conversation and sponsors to rip. Oh, because I'm doing ads now? Oh, sorry. Sorry I'm making money on it now. Like I wasn't. Like, I worked on this for seven years, guy. You want me just to do it for free? Like it's my entire life. I have a family to provide for. I know you have a kid to feed and this is a job. Okay. <laughs> do you? The problem is it sounds like you're doing a job now. Unlike before when it sounded like you were following a personal passion. Oh, there might be some truth to that. I am doing a job. Um, I was pursuing a personal passion. It's still a personal passion to me. It really is. I enjoyed doing it. But I mean, if I don't understand what you're talking about really overall here. I can't even find the old episodes anymore. I was a monthly donor for. What the fuck are you talking about? You're not a monthly donor for past episodes. You're for the episodes that I put out every month. I put out 10, I think, eight, eight episodes last month on Patreon. 
Um, that's the Luna I want to hear, not this sellout stuff that has lost the art you once made. Okay, well, thank you, new to apps. Appreciate it. Anything else here? <laughs> this is not going well. I don't know about that. I, I don't know what you fucking want from me. I feel like I'm still myself. I quit drinking. Um, I slept the other day, but I'm not drunk on this episode. Maybe that's what you're hearing. Maybe you're talking about Marooned. I have a new podcast called Marooned where I don't swear or, you know, screw around so much. Maybe that's what you're talking about. I don't know if you're talking about Tales from the Bottom Down or Brutal with Kent or maybe you heard something else. Maybe you heard someone else do a promo on my episode and you mistook it for me and quickly went to write me a one-star review after listening to me for seven years. I don't fucking know. Um, great podcast. Hello out there. That's my favorite part. Jack is a vibe. It's dark, grimy at times. Jack delivers. Not disappointed one bit. Thank you very much. Who's that? Madge, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, this was a bad idea. Um, hey, leave me a five-star review or a one-star review if you like, and maybe I'll read it out in the show sometime uh, the next time I decided to do that. Oh, and oh my God, I got to shout out the high-level tier support on Patreon. Cass Thibodeau, thank you so much, Cass. You've been around forever. Tony Cote Malork. Tony, thank you, my man. <laughs> Denise Legere. Denise Thank you so much. Sorry it took me so long to shout you guys out and that I shouted out my one-star reviews before my high-level support uh, to your people. I'm a glutton for punishment, I guess a bit of a whiny baby, but also digging for entertainment value, I think, here. Let's say that. It's not an insecurity issue at all. It's uh, razzle-dazzle, ring a uh, there was a lot of five-star reviews I noticed there, too. I just always think it's funny to read the one-star. So there just so happened to be some bad ones right off the top there. Uh, other than that, hey, until next time, keep those eyes cocked, those doors locked, stay paranoid. I'm doing great. I, I use these uh, Zippic toothpicks now. I stopped smoking. Uh, they're going to become a sponsor of mine, apparently, too. So hope no one has a problem with that. And, um, yeah, toothpicks are working for me to quit smoking with nicotine infusing them. Zippics. What else? Just hanging with my kids. Uh, like I said, this one dragged on me quite a bit. And uh, I'll be back with something a little more easy for me to, uh, to, to bang out and maybe have some more fun with and in, the, in the old style of Dark Topic. Hey, he got to me. Look at that. Like I say, eyes cocked, doors locked, stay paranoid. Thank you all so much for the support. Big love. And uh, I'll talk at you as soon as I possibly can. Check out Patreon. Check out Apple Plus if, you're, if you want more episodes. Thank you.